Hello there, and happy St. Patrick's Day 2019 to all our listeners. We're still busy working away to bring you season 3 of the Irish Passport, but in the meantime, we've decided to celebrate the national holiday by bringing you this bonus live episode recorded on March 12th at the Museum of London. This was a Young Ambassadors event organised by friend of the podcast, William McQuillan, who was kind enough to invite us to participate and to record the evening's event for our listeners. In just a few minutes, you'll hear me interviewing Seamus O'Reilly, the dairy journalist who some of you will know from the prolific Twitter handle shame as it ever was, hashtag best Twitter name ever, and Belfast-born Danielle Thom, historian and curator of making at the Museum of London. But first, let's hear a few words from the museum's director of content, Finbar Hooley, who gave us a short rundown of the history of the Irish in the British capital. Irish people have lived in London for hundreds of years. It really wouldn't be unusual, for instance, to have heard uh, an Irish accent in, on the streets of medieval London. Looking to the sort of long history of, of the Irish community, I suppose it's in the 18th century that a significant Irish community emerged. And largely speaking, that's the community, that that community has really continued right through to the present day. The 18th century saw a significant growth of population across Europe generally and an explosion of population in Ireland. Between the mid-18th and the mid-19th century, the population of Ireland doubled from 4 to 8 million, much higher percentage-wise than anywhere else. And in England, that increased population uh, was absorbed in the growing industrial base of the country. In Ireland, however, there wasn't any significant opportunities for employment. So moving away for work was the natural first step. No. This period saw the growth of migratory work within Ireland, the, the, the spalpeen, the travelling worker. Uh, and increasingly they travelled to England um, to help in the seasonal work. In Ulster, of course, there was a chance to emigrate to the New World, but the new emerging United States weren't welcoming Roman Catholics uh, at that stage. So from the south there wasn't the possibility of immigration uh, in, the, in the 18th century. People travelled to England to work as navvies, uh, cutting the canals and building the developing infrastructure uh, in the city. In London, there was a need for labour uh, to build a rapidly expanding city, which was growing phenomenally as a result of the wealth of trade and empire, much of which was dependent on the hugely important slave tr uh, trade of the period. Irish people lived in significant poverty in 18th and 19th century London. The rookery which is largely the area uh, in a triangle from St Giles up to the British Museum around New Oxford Street, was home to literally thousands of Irish people. And following the Great Famine of 1845-47, of course, that population was refreshed with thousands of disease-ridden, very poor Irish-speaking emigrants. Uh, in the late 19th century, the city's population exploded from roughly one to six million over the course of the 19th century. London was now the centre of, really the centre of the world. It was the, the centre of the greatest and most powerful empire on the planet. Industry and empire needed labour, uh, unskilled for the building of the railways and educated running the bureaucracy of empire. In the late Victorian period, Irish people supported both needs. So late Victorian London, it was also a home to a hugely significant middle class which was heavily represented in professions like journalism. Virtually all of the key journalists in late Victorian London were Irish. The people behind the Gaelic Renaissance, people like Yeats and Lady Gregory, all spent significant time in London. People like George Bernard Shaw and Oscar Wilde were hugely significant presences in London and very much defined themselves as Irishmen and women. Uh, the museum holds a very interesting visitor's book from the fashionable Fitzrovia restaurant, La Tour Eiffel. And it's really interesting to see how many Irish people feature in its pages. The most famous of these people was Michael Collins, whose name is also here on the uh, Fitzrovia autograph book, and spent eight years in London, during which time he was radicalised. He joined the IRB in Islington. He spent half of his adult life in London from 1906 to 1915. The hopes and dreams of the revolutionaries who came against the realities, their lives against the realities of establishing a new state in the 20s and 30s, a time of economic collapse in Ireland uh, and the growth of populism across Europe. Emigration was again difficult for the US in the 1930s as it closed its doors. Of course, London remained a home 
for Irish people, and they continue to arrive in smaller numbers, but they still continue to arrive throughout the 1930s. But it was after the war that Irish London, as we popularly know it, came into its own. From the 1950s to the 1970s, thousands of young Irish people travelled from Ireland to find work in the NHS and the rebuilding uh, of the London that was devastated by war. The population failed by the southern state was thrown back on their own resources. With strong on-the-ground support from activist members of the Catholic clergy, Irish people also formed political organisations. And when the trouble started again in the late 60s, that, that particular community was, was thrown into turmoil as the media turned against the Irish community. So that community today, to my mind, they should be celebrated for their industry, their resilience, and their dancing. Thank you very much. All right, so just to let you know who, who I am, uh, my name is Tim McInerney. I'm a lecturer in the cultural history of uh, Britain and Ireland at the University of Paris, Vincennes-Saint-Denis. And I'm also a co-presenter of the Irish Passport podcast along with journalist Naomi O'Leary. And so if you take a look at your table, you see those little cards. That's my, my tiny little face on there somewhere. And you'll find the address of the podcast. That will be www.theirishpassport.com. You'll be able to listen back to this through that website or through your favorite podcast app where you'll find us. Thank you very much to the Museum of London for allowing us to do that. The reason that I'm here tonight at this event is that the Irish Passport podcast, we try and link the history and the culture and the politics of Ireland to put the current affairs of Ireland into context and to see why things are the way they are. And that's why I have these uh, two great people beside me. Uh, first up, we have uh, Danielle Tham. Uh, Danielle is curator of making here at the museum. She looks after collections of craft and decorative arts from 1700 to the present day and specializes in both 18th century and contemporary material. Uh, Danielle was born in Belfast, yes. uh, but grew up in London. Um, and she tells me, but I don't believe her, that she was kicked out of Irish dancing school in 1993 for having two left feet. I have been banned from every fish in London. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's a long that. story. <laughs> Maybe we'll hear a bit of it. Next up, we have Seamus O'Reilly. Seamus is a journalist from Derry. Uh, he currently lives in Hackney. And he has weekly columns in both the Irish Times and The Observer. And is co-presenter of Rinse FM's AVA Power Hour <laughs> and another podcast... <laughs> Oh, we, have, we have some fans there. Um, another podcast called The Reducer, uh, which is about the worst football-related art, movies, music, and books ever created. So give that a listen. It sounds, it sounds like fun. Uh, he's currently writing his first book called Did You Hear Mammy Died? And that will be a memoir of his childhood in Derry. And it's due to be published by Fleet around this time next year. Right, so I want to get straight struck, uh, stuck into it. And uh, the first thing I want to ask you both about actually is, I suppose the quintessential Irish experience of this city is arriving mm. in London, right? Because there is nothing like London in Ireland. Uh, we have our Dublin, we have our Belfast, but the, you know, in, in scale, they just mm. don't compare even slightly. Um, so I, I'd just love to know, what were your first impressions when you first came here? Maybe we'll start with James. Well, I was reminded um, of how loud I speak. I was reminded because uh, my first job interview when I landed here eight years ago was about a five-minute walk away from here. And uh, I decided, I'm actually getting full-body shivers remembering, I decided I would tell them <clears throat> uh, at the desk, this is the tallest building I've ever been in. <laughs> um, like, I might as well just drop the pig from under my arm, having said it. Um, so I arrived here eight years ago, 2011, um, and... It's kind of very sort of predictable story. I'd been in Dublin, things weren't great there, job-wise, etc. Uh, so me and my uh, my now wife, uh, we moved over, and uh, yeah, we kind of got jobs kind of straight away. Um, so that was that was the first big culture shock, really. Um, and uh, also finding just that there were so many people coming and going at that time. So we came over to probably about 10, 12 people that we knew fairly well from Dublin, and then a sort of extended crew of like maybe another 20 who you would have seen up there and about, and every month there'd be another two, another three, another four, at that time between 2010 and 2012, to the point where uh, I was signed up with a, a recruitment agency who um, 
slightly charmingly, slightly racistly, started calling me the Irish Embassy because they would just call me up and say, hey, we've got this office job. Do you have anyone who's looking for office work? And I'd say, yes. Always, my friend actually just moved over two days ago. Um, they sent me Christmas cards and everything, did the agency. Uh, I got a Marks and Spencer's voucher for 20 pounds, it was amazing. Um, but it seemed like there was such a huge sort of surge uh, and non-stop tap of people coming over. Um, I mean, I don't know if that's actually slowed now or if I'm just too old to be greeting them as they come off the planes. But, <laughs> But yeah, that's, that's, that's mine. That was eight okay. years ago. Oh, fantastic. I, mean, I, I certainly empathise, and I think a lot of Irish people will. I mean, my, my same kind of bumpkin moment, I think. Well, I moved over um, when I was 18, actually, um, just for a year, making some money. Uh, and I was amazed by the bus stops with the minutes telling you when the next bus is coming. And that was 2005, you know? But I had never seen, and, and I couldn't figure out how did it work, how did they know, and the, anyway. Pointing at planes, <laughs> just like, whoa. Anyway, Danielle, you moved over as a child, did you? That's right, yeah. and I'm glad you started with Seamus, who actually has a story to tell, <laughs> because I was not a fully sentient being when I came over here. I, one would argue, am I even now? Who knows? Um, I moved over here 30 two years ago. I'm 34, for the avoidance of doubt. Um, we, which is to say, Mummy, Daddy and I came over from Belfast when I was very young. Um, they were primarily looking for work, so this is the late 1980s. Um, my dad had actually worked while it, you know, for the few years it was open at the DeLorean car factory in Belfast, but that closed down, yeah? Oh. He has, he had actually touched the DeLorean that was in Back to the Future. Anyway, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm actually very honoured. Um, so, partly a shortage of work, and partly in the context of a little historical phenomenon you might have heard of called the Troubles. Uh, my daddy was Protestant, my mother's Catholic, and while their, their immediate families had no issue with that, uh, but what you might refer to as the wider community. <laughs> Uh, some people took issue with that and uh, they, I guess, they decided, you know, we don't want to bring our daughter up in this environment and that, you know, with the, the combined pressure to find employment was the impetus to come to London. My mother's, one of my mother's older sisters, um, one of, I, big family. Uh, I know that, Jones, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard. Um, so each of, you know, both my parents were one of seven each. Um, I have a lot of cousins. Um, one of my mother's sisters was here already. She'd married an English guy who came over a few years earlier, so we stayed with them. We could have as easily ended up in Wigan, which was apparently where my dad also had a job offer. We came to London. I'm profoundly grateful for that fact, just because London has been many things to me, and it's, it's odd, you know, being Irish, being a Londoner, not really knowing where you, where you belong, what foot you kick with. Yeah, and let's you know, like, um, uh, stay on that actually, uh, because there is like there's a nuance here, right? Because there is um, for people from the Irish Republic, uh, when you're coming, it's quite a straightforward dynamic that's happening. Really, you're going for, uh, from one country to another country that speaks the same language, but the rules are different. Everything's different. The money's different, and it's like going from Belgium to France, you know. But when you're going from Northern Ireland, making that same journey, it becomes so much more complex. So, could you um, comment, maybe both of you, on just your experience as people from from the north, uh, living here, maybe Seamus. Uh, I find that a lot of English people don't know if they if they own Northern Ireland or not. So, um, my wife, when she went in for her first um, her first like job centre interview, just literally get a national national insurance number. Um, I already have one because you know I'm technically a Brit. So uh, one of the nice things about being from Northern Ireland, possibly the only nice thing. From Northern Ireland, except that you're not scared of other Northern Irish people. That's the other. Um, yeah, no, well, yeah, some of us. But uh, uh, she was asked. She said, "Oh, I'm from Dublin." She says, "Oh, I'm not being funny, but do we own that? Um, meaning, is it in the UK or not?" But like, that's from people who work in, you know, in government jobs who clearly are doing a lot of paperwork for people from Ireland, obviously. So, if even that level of, I mean, ignorance in its most, you know non-judgmental sense of the word. Um, the Northern Irish thing then gets even more complicated because I generally don't tell people whether or not, <laughs> because it just becomes this whole conversation where they're trying to prove that they 
know the things they very clearly do not know. <laughs> do, they, uh, do they know the basics in your um, not Not even the most remote basics, no. I, I, like, just... No, I don't think they could... I do, before Dairy Girls came out, I don't think many of them had even heard of Derry, or they thought that Derry and London Derry were perhaps two separate different places. The only thing they know about Northern Ireland is that it's the only part of Ireland that gets weather on the news. But. Well, I'd like to ask Danielle about that. We actually did an episode on the podcast about this phenomenon, uh, which, you know, in the past, we all, as we all know, you know, we kind of used to laugh about it in the past, but it's suddenly become very serious in the last two years because of, you know, serious political uh, advances that have been happening uh, with one certain border that's, uh, that's at the center of them. Um, Danielle, you grew up here, so you might have a, a better insight into that. Why do you think there is such confusion about Northern Ireland in particular in mainland Britain? There are multiple reasons for that. I mean, my own experience has been a combination of people going, oh, you're Irish, yes. Where are you from? Belfast, originally. Oh, you're not really Irish, are you? Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and people going, oh, you're, uh, you're Irish. Yeah. Northern Ireland. Did you blow anyone up? <laughs> uh, that was a feature of school. I was, yes, I, I, yes. I've been asked many times if I was in the IRA, yeah. which is complicated by the fact that I am in the IRA, yeah. but... Uh, oh, we, we, don't, we, we, we all are. You actually have to be. It's Mainly law. police. Yeah. Is it, is, that's by adults. No, for real, I'm, I'm not even joking. And what you said there about, uh, oh, uh, you're from Belfast, uh, so you're not really from Ireland. Yeah. That would probably happen to me if anyone in London knew where Derry was, yeah. <laughs> because they just don't, they, they think it's Belfast and friends. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that doesn't really happen. Okay, well, I mean, like, it is a fascinating, it is a fascinating thing. It's a fascinating relationship uh, in particular because, you know, this is, this is the geography of the UK as well that's being uh, left out. Uh, something that we did explore certainly is that, you know, a strange kind of vision that a lot of uh, people in the UK must have of their own country if they don't know, you know, where the border is. Um, but um, uh, I'd like to look a little bit at the history of that as well because there's always been a complex relationship between Irish people who moved here and what, how, they're, how they feel about it and how, how they are perceived as well, absolutely. Uh, so we saw there in, uh, in an opening talk, um, we saw a sketch called The Two Pats, and that uh, was sketched by somebody called John Nixon, I believe, in 1810. And just to put that in a bit of context, that was, you know, 1810, that was just nine years after the Act of Union. So Ireland had just become part of the United Kingdom at that point. Um, so those two men were coming to, for the first time, really, um, to, to England as UK citizens. You know, they weren't foreigners anymore. But yet they are seen very much in this kind of um, othered view. Um, I wanted to talk to you, Danielle, about this because it's not just laborers that were coming over in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, we ha had, you know, elites, Irish elites as well. They had, you know, kind of upped sticks and moved to London too after the Act of Union. Uh, so could you talk about how they were seen and how just generally Irish people were seen at different levels in London? Absolutely. So in that kind of 18th, early 19th century context, you're right that in addition to the many thousands of, shall we say, the labouring poor who came over for work, there were a significant number of middle class, uh, or you know, as we would now call it, middle class and elite aristocratic people who whose origins were Irish, but who came to London you know, for reasons of political influence or to find fame. Um, and many of those you know, were writers, actors and actresses, people like um, Edwin Burke, the MP, Richard Sheridan, the playwright, um, Peg Waffington, who was really important mid-18th century actress, Oliver Goldsmiths, etc., etc. What is interesting, though, is that for the most part, while the vast majority of Irish migrants to London, those who were among the labouring poor, were Catholic. Almost all um, of the, shall we say, the, the elite migrants uh, were Protestant. And there were very good reasons for that, primarily because in order to enter certain public roles, such as becoming a member of parliament, legally you had to be Protestant. Uh, the issue of Catholic emancipation, which is to say the, the breaking down of the legal restrictions on Catholics occupying certain public offices and public roles, was a very sort of political hot potato throughout the 18th century and the early 19th. And in fact, Catholic emancipation doesn't get enshrined in law until the 1820s. And ironically enough, one of the key opponents to it, when the bill is finally being passed through Parliament, was an Irishman, Duke of Wellington. Protestant Irishman. Um, so there's this very, very complicated dynamic around what is 
Irishness and whether or not being Irish is something you want to own up to if you're moving in these elite circles, as it were. Um, there's certainly a sense among the aristocracy that Irish peers, you know, uh, earls and dukes holding lands in Ireland, are somehow a bit lesser than their British, oh, sorry, their English equivalents. Um, and so, for example, they're very often forced to stump up higher um, marriage settlements if they want to marry into the English aristocracy, for example. They're, that really, that complicated sense of where you belong based in part on your religious identity. Okay, and that's a very interesting um, power relationship, I suppose. Um, it's something I've, I've noticed myself uh, just in research is yeah, a lot of characters you might see in 18th century fiction, um, Irish characters in London, um, and in London particularly, their, their caricature, which is almost like a counterpart of the caricature in that, uh, in that sketch, is that they're trying to prove themselves uh, to be as good as everyone else all the time and being and going overboard and being ridiculous and doing it and not quite getting things right. Do you think there's something of that still in, in the power relationship between, let's say, Dublin and London? Well, I'm constantly trying to prove myself, so yes. Um, I think it's funny, isn't it? Because in order to, to kind of explore this idea, you have to at least take on board partly the idea that there is a kind of a monolithic Irishness and there absolutely isn't. You know, what it is to be Irish differs along axes of class and gender and race and um, you know I'm very reluctant to to kind of approach this question from that standpoint if you see what I mean but I do think absolutely there has been this very uneasy relationship in terms of reciprocal cultural influence um, and maybe, maybe yes, a little bit of an inferiority complex among some Irish people, not all, that has persisted into the 21st century. But of course, on the other hand, that is countered by very vehement public assertions of Irishness. You've got the Gaelic League that's formed in the 1890s, for example, to really kind of um, emphasise the importance of preserving traditional Irish culture, the Irish language. And of course, of course so much of what we take uh, for granted today as traditional Irish culture is in some respects a 19th century construct, as you know. Um, it may have its roots in older traditions, but the form it takes today is relatively modern, and it's, it's an assertive act. Okay, right. I want to stay on history just for one more question now, and then we'll move on to something more recent. Um, uh, uh, because I, I want to kind of look at that period as well, because, like, the, the shift of people is just astounding, like we heard in, in Finbar's talk. Um, I, I had the figures there somewhere, but there's something like 415,000 people in Britain um, before, Irish people uh, in Britain before, in 1841, I believe, was the census year. And in 1860, there's 805,000. You know, uh, so you've doubled suddenly. And all of those new people are mostly, well, 90% are going to be um, desperately poor Catholic possibly people who don't speak English at all. So there has to have been a huge shift um, in understandings and in perceptions um, in London. Uh, during that period as well, of course, we have, we have something on display here, um, a Victoria Bog Oak bracelet um, from the years around the famine. There was huge resentment in Ireland around the famine, um, a massive political resentment against the Union, against the UK, because of the famine, whether it was justified or not, that resentment, it was there. Um, and that blossomed into a quite like a radical cultural nationalism in the decades afterwards. So all these St. Patrick's Day posters in green and this and that, you know, it all has a very kind of anti-UK political bint lying in there somewhere underneath it. So could you just comment on maybe like that push and pull relationship? Uh, like a lot of those Irish people needed London and yet London was in the kind of uh, uh, imagination for them, the headquarters of the imperial enemy. Yes, and... Um some people, I think, would, would still argue that that is indeed the case. Um, so you're absolutely right. There is that economic need of what London has to offer, regardless of where you sit, as it were, on the social ladder, regardless of your income, whether you're seeking um, you know, ill-paid labour to keep body and soul together, or whether you are, let's say, a writer seeking fame and fortune. London is an obvious draw. But at the same time, yes, there are elements of the city that are problematic, that are difficult, that are violent even. I mean, again, if you were to jump back to the 18th century, one of the greatest uh, disturbances that London has ever seen, perhaps the, the closest that London has ever come to full-scale revolution, 1780, the Gordon Riots. 
Um, the Gordon riots are um, two to three days of really quite, um, well, I was going to say Larry rioting, which is not a, not a historical term, I should add. Um, yes, yes, it's, it's an absolute unit of a riot. Um, so what it is, it's a reaction against the possible introduction of Catholic emancipation, which I was talking about earlier. And as I say, that doesn't eventually pass till the early 19th century. But in the late 1770s, there are a number of sort of liberally minded MPs who want to pass Catholic emancipation. And there's a Protestant agitator, know a few of them, called Lord George Gordon. He's actually Scottish. And he sort of whips up a frenzy of uh, resentment among the English working class inhabitants of London against Catholics and specifically against Irish chairmen, um, which are Irish guys in London who are employed to carry sedan chairs. So at this point, if you didn't want to sort of go out in public and ruin your fine clothing, you could call a, a sedan chair. Literally, it's a chair on a pole. So is this like a, they're taking our jobs? Yeah, thing? yeah, okay. yeah. They're taking our jobs and, and our they're saying a Hail Mary over them to boot. <laughs> um, so there, so there, are, there are fights in the streets. Um, a prison is literally burned to the ground. People's homes are ransacked. And it's sort of the Irish working guys versus the English working guys. I mean, that, that's a real simplification of it. But that essentially is what happened. So... To return to your point, yes, this kind of this mutual antagonism is something that has persisted for a very long time. You can look at the reaction in London to the so-called Fenian outrages in the 1860s and 70s. Um, you know, th there's always been this kind of mutual, I think, suspicion and codependence at the same time. It's like a really toxic relationship. <laughs> London is a bad boyfriend, basically. <laughs> well, I think there's even, there's still, like, language that's used. I mean, it was said jokingly, but a friend of mine, Paul, mm. when I moved to London, he said, oh, you're taking the Queen's shilling. Yeah. You know, which is obviously, it was not meant sincerely, but yeah. that's a term that only exists because yeah. that was a thing. And, you know, if you went and you, you joined the British Army, which, let's see, you know, so many oh, Irish hundreds of thousands of yeah. Irish people did. My great uncle Tommy died in the Second World War. Yeah. Like loads of people did, um, but that still exists. Just that, even if, just as a joke or as a lighthearted thing, because there was that sort of queasy sort yeah. of relationship where it was the only way you were going to get paid, but there was some element of debasement in it, yeah. or some sense of being used as a second-class citizen. You've taken the soup. Yeah, well, taking the soup. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Um, Seamus, you've actually written kind of about that sentiment coming from Ireland about uh, Irish immigrants. You wrote in the Irish Times, uh, was it this year or, or last year? It was last year. Last um, year. Um, about, uh, I think there were 600,000 people you mentioned who had come to Ireland after yeah. the financial crash. Yeah, um, and you were just talking about the Irish government isn't always particularly um, enthusiastic about getting them back. No, the, the, the tonnage at the time actually said... They, she was shown all these this footage of people at airports, um, like my friends and everyone I knew pretty much, uh, and she said they look like they're having a great time. You know, they're going off and having adventures, and she was actually right because <laughs> there is something very nice I'm sure about going to Melbourne and starting a GAA club and eventually having to leave Melbourne because that's apparently what's been going on quite a bit, or coming to London and making friends and you know building careers and stuff. But you know, seventeen and a half percent of all the people on earth who were born in Ireland, no longer live in Ireland, which is way higher than anywhere else. Um, I mean, New Zealand is like 14%, and then it's a big, steep drop. So we really are throwing people. Uh, so a lot of people, I think in the time it was 600,000, I think net migration was something like 200,000, because a lot of people were, uh, a lot of Eastern European people and West African people were going back, so it's hard to do the numbers. But basically, a huge a huge generation or a huge amount of the generation who were young and educated um, basically left. I don't know, in Berlin, they're in London, they're in New York, they're in wherever. Uh, and we won't know exactly what effect that's had probably for another 10 or 15 years because they're exactly the people who uh, do an awful lot of interesting things. Um, you know, so it's kind of weird that we were so flippantly thrown out. I mean... I wrote that piece for uh, the Irish Times, and I've written about 200 pieces for the Irish Times, and people don't really notice, but unless you slag off the GAA, the Irish language, or talk about how emigrating was good for me, um, those are the three topics, then you just get loads of comments. The best thing was, one guy wrote underneath, if you don't like Ireland, you just leave. 
And it's like, well, he's either just summing up the entire content of the article or he just really, really doesn't get it. Um, but yeah, we had something like five or six years where people were constantly leaving, constantly going. And it was kind of good for the government because it made the employment numbers look better because we were the people who didn't have jobs. So that's why we were leaving. So they could say, look, employment's gone down. But if you walk down the street in Athlone, you know, your voice echoes off the walls, you know? And the only people who can't emigrate are people who are older, or people, you know, as Blind Boy uh, from the Rubber Bandit says, you know, are people who were caught with a nine bar hash and so they can't emigrate to Australia. And, you know, it's a simplification, yes. But it, it's true. I mean, you've, you're kind of draining an awful lot of people from a place. Um, and I think the Irish government maybe should maybe try and get some people back, I don't know. But. Right, I mean, like, they, they, they say that they are, right? <laughs> um, however uh, sincere they, they well, are. Theresa May seems to be doing it for them, so, you know. <laughs> okay, well, listen, I wasn't going to bring it up, but we're here now. Uh, <laughs> yes, I got to elbow that in. For the day that's in it, we do have to talk about the, the dreaded B word. Uh, how do you, how do you, how, first of all, how have you been affected for the last two years uh, by the culture of Brexit that's arisen in London? Well, I'm not from Derry City. I'm from the border, and I mean literally on the border. Um, so there's a 200-meter line of trees that my dad uh, planted basically to keep a horse away from our uh, bushes. Uh, <laughs> and that is now, and I've done the math, 0.04% of the border between the UK and the European Union. Um, we don't just live on the border, we are the border. And there's 302 miles of it, uh, not in our house, uh, but in, <laughs> in the whole of Northern Ireland. So when people, talk, when people you know, um, Tory spin doctors and right-wing columnists on their skiing holidays say, I just went through the border between Switzerland and France and it was fine. You're just like, well, that is, I mean, the paucity of that as an explanation. You've got 300 miles of pretty much open fields. Uh, the customs house that used to be there at the top of my house is now a, a four-bedroom family home. The customs house for Ireland, which is literally, you know, spitting distance, not that I ever would, uh, is a kickboxing gym. So, first of all, good luck getting rid of them. You know, they're, you know, <laughs> 12 oiled-up kickboxers. Um, I've, I've actually no evidence of the oil, but the mind wanders. Uh, but we, we, we have like all these places which would have to be staffed, they'd have to be manned. So for Brexit to make it, to be actually put in place is not just, you know, ludicrous financially and everything else. What gets me is being from that place, it's a logistical impossibility. So, yeah. Uh, um, for, the, for the Irish people living in London, uh, 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 is there an awareness, I suppose, um, of other people around them? I mean, we have this confusion um, whether Ireland is independent or not, which we were talking about at the beginning of, of the program. Is there, is there an awareness of how much you will be affected, just your families personally, um, by Brexit? Well, I have started stockpiling canned food just to be on the safe side, because <laughs> if I run out of hummus, I'm, I'm not going to be happy. Um, it, Really, in, entirely seriously, I think, um, aside from the fact that on a structural and, and national level, Brexit is the most infuriating, incompetent clusterfudge you can imagine, on a personal level, um, and this is where it turns into group therapy, I'm sorry about this, <laughs> it's quite discombobulating because, obviously, for, for all of my life, I have been, you know, an Irish woman in London, but I've also been a Londoner. I went to school here. Um, I just about still have my accent, but, you know, I don't sound like that, um, which I would have if I'd never left. You, you, you see where I'm going with this. And also, to just make it that bit more complicated, I've got, you know, Catholic family, Protestant family, where do I belong? Nowhere. Who even knows? But I've always managed to just about keep that in uneasy check in terms of how I identify, you know, pretty flexible. And now with, with possibly what will happen as a result of Brexit... I feel like I'm being forced to choose. I feel like I'm being told, you know, you're this or you're this, but you cannot be both. I can <laughs> do what I want. Um, so I, don't judge me, but I have a British passport, um, which, you know, I have always had, and logistically that's made sense, but I am obviously, you know, uh, entitled to my Irish citizenship, and I'm, I'm taking that up, and I should have done it years ago, but Brexit is obviously an impetus, so the Irish passport application is in the works and on its way, and um, as, as it happens, later in the summer I'm getting married uh, in Ireland, because my partner's Irish, he's from Cork, 
and I'm trying to work out with the registry office what documentation I need to provide in order to prove that I am who I am and I'm eligible to get married and I'm not committing bigamy this time. And <laughs> so I'm on, on the phone with them and saying, you know, I, you know I'm an Irish citizen, right? Uh, yeah, okay, well, yeah, we won't register you as a foreign national, thanks. Um, but you will have to have your Irish passport in hand to prove your citizenship. No problem at all, very reasonable. So I'm explaining this to my mother on the phone. She's over back in Belfast. And um, I'm like, okay, so they'll, um, so they'll list me as, as Irish. You are Irish? I know that, mummy. I know that, but I have to prove. Why do you have to prove you're Irish? You are Irish. And if it wasn't for the historical injustice, like, mum, mum, <laughs> calm down, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> You see where I'm going with this. The, the point is, is that it's throwing up all of these questions which were, if not exactly settled, they were at least not pushed to the front. So quite apart from all the structural mess it's going to cause, the really important thing, which is me, <laughs> is, you know, it, it's confusing. Well, I think, as, yeah. I mean, I don't actually have a British passport, although I'm entitled to one. I've always wanted to get, have one just so I could have, like... And I could grow out a beard and I'd get the picture for that. And then I'd have two passports that looked slightly different. I'd keep them in a duffel bag with different cash and like a safe deposit box. <laughs> and just every once in a while, just go and look at them. And Jason Bourne's feel style. like I was Jason yeah. Bourne. Will you get one now? Seriously. I mean, I cannot think of a single good reason to get a British passport now. I mean, maybe before because of the Jason Bourne thing. I don't know if you're listening. <laughs> but um, now I don't see what the point is. Like an Irish passport now... Um, and uh, a sunny half Northern Irish brogue. It's like, you're kind of like a day walker. You're able to kind of move between the two things. Um, but in terms of the actual like, borders effects, I mean, sometimes, like you were saying, it is such a cluster fudge uh, that you kind of get sick of it and you think, well, do you know what? It's, just, it's like if you've got a drunk mate on a, on a night out and he wants to go up and pet the police horse. And you're saying, that's a really bad idea. You really don't need to. But then eventually you're like, do you know what? pet that police horse and see what happens. And, you know, if he gets a clatter, then, you know, he, that's what was supposed to happen. But okay. the problem is that one of the people getting the clatter would be my dad, who lives in the border, who's sat, lived through 20 years of, uh, you know, a, a, a cessation of internecine violence that nobody thought was going to be solved, then kind of sort of by hook or by crook was. Now we're seeing if that possibly could flare up. At the same time, my dad is a diabetic. And insulin is not manufactured by the United Kingdom. So he has the lovely menu in front of him of, you know, <sighs> fearing certain death from an anaphylactic shock or a petrol bomb, basically, because the Tory party decided to cozy up to the most racist elements of their fringe. And that's really, really cool, and I'm happy about it, so... <laughs> I would just like, um, because I, I want to get in some questions, um, uh, I'd just love to know, because um, I know quite a few people who have, Irish people, I mean, who have left London in the last year or two, um, specifically because of Brexit. Do, you, do either of you know quickly numbers, yes or no? I don't know about specifically from, about Brexit, but I do know people who have been moving back or moving away or moving on. Um, I'd love to ask the audience, do you know an Irish person who's left recently? Any hands up? About six, seven people? Not because of Brexit. Yeah, they love Brexit. All right. Okay. All right, listen, and now we have, we have loads more to talk about, um, but I'll put this to the audience. I'd love to know if anyone has any questions. You can just stick your hand up. We have a roving mic up there. We have one in the front. Just wait for the mic there. And can you just uh, say your name and where you're from? Hello, I'm Owen from Dublin. Uh, question about education. So you both grew up in, in, a, in a different places obviously any English people I talk to and ask about you know what, what did you learn about Ireland they basically nothing is the answer whereas obviously when I was growing up in Dublin we learned all about why the Republic is the Republic and why the North is the North etc what was it like growing up in London did you did you learn anything um, and Seamus like <laughs> what was it like where you went to school you know was the, the comparison I guess well um, obviously most of most of my sense of Irish identity and Irish history came from my family rather than from school. To be fair, my school weren't too bad. So I went to a comprehensive school in South London, but it was a Catholic school. For that reason, there were a lot of Irish kids or kids of Irish parents there. So I don't think my experience was 
so isolated in some respects, but there, there were some differences definitely compared to, say, how my cousins were educated or... Um, Do you mean that, sorry, that the curriculum of the school would include some Irish topics? A or? little bit, yes. Um, well, it was a Catholic school, so there was a lot of, you know, abortion is a sin and you're all going to hell. So that's obviously very Irish. <laughs> um, but no, we, we actually, I do recall we did a module in history on the Troubles. Um, obviously, I was the class expert on that, which was fabulous. <laughs> My oral history project was amazing. Like, Granda, <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> Primary sources. Um, and, you know, I, there was a fairly substantial Irish community. My parents had a lot of friends who were also Irish through school. They were parents of kids I went to school with, and, and that was nice and what have you. Um, but in terms of the curriculum content, I felt the difference. So in terms of the sports we play, for example, it was all, it was rugby and football and tennis. Never, never picked up a camogie stick in my <laughs> life, um, apart from to hit people with, but that's different. <laughs> and, you know, never learned the Irish language, for example. The only words I know in Irish are swear words, and I'm not going to repeat them here. Um, so there were definite differences and feelings of difference, but it wasn't quite so isolating as it could have been, and I think as it is for many English kids. In Northern Ireland, it's kind of like halfway between that. So we didn't get to learn the Irish language in primary school. Uh, you could go to like a bun school and do it differently, but that was a sort of a separate thing. But like state mandated um, teaching didn't didn't give us Irish. Uh, I cho chose to do Irish for three years in secondary school, but did it as a foreign language, so it was just treated the same way. Uh, the history in my school in Derry, it seemed like definitely in secondary school, having not really learned very much about Northern Ireland and about civil rights and troubles, there's a, a, a roughly when you turn about fourteen they decide they're going to give you it in such granular detail that it's actually shocking. This is so, you know, and these were the murders that happened on July 17th, 1976. And, you know, it seems like it's going very much in detail. But then that, what happened was you, everywhere else you go, whether it be in Dublin, where it was the first place I settled after Derry, or in London, no one had a clue about any of that stuff. I mean, they had broad brush strokes if they had anything. Um, and one thing I will say is that people in London are often quite ignorant, but quite apologetic. People in Dublin were kind of ignorant without the apology, <laughs> because they maybe, maybe they had a false sense of knowledge that they'd had. I mean, I remember getting in a Dub in the taxi. I mean, Dublin taxis are a bad representation of Dublin people, in fairness. Um, it's like literally like clan rallies on wheels but there uh, uh, one guy got in and he heard me say like take me into the town or some some shibboleth that was revealing that I was from Derry or from Northern Ireland I said, oh, where are you from? I like, I'm from um, I'm from Derry he says ah, if you ask me they should tie a rope around you and just just pull you into the sea I don't want you where did you say you were going again? it was literally the first thing he said to me <laughs> I was like well my word like bizarre like if a Rwandan got in there would you be like just oh just pick a side that quickly and um so I think some aspects of education in terms of how they're taught in school it has a massive effect because I think people really that's what they pick up that's what they've got and so when you meet English people who've never heard anything almost sometimes a little bit of information is is worse because it, gives, it makes people think that they do know okay right uh, any other questions I saw some hands up there this lady here in the black yeah um, I was just thinking that, I'm um, oh, sorry, I'm Mary, I'm from Greystones in Wicklow. Um, I was wondering, one of the tropes that Irish people often see is that sign of no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And I was just wondering from a historical point of view, obviously Brexit has brought up those kind of conversations about the prejudice against Irish people in London. And in a, in a historical point of view, how did that kind of um, prejudice, prejudice kind of compare to that of people of colour? And was there any sort of, is it really uh, something that's worth even talking about nowadays in, in the grander scheme of the prejudice that happens to people of colour? Um, if, if I may take yes. this one. My view on this would be that while, yes, there, there absolutely has historically been prejudice against Irish people in London, but also you know, in the US, um, it's not specific to here, but it is, in my view, it is not anything like on a par with the 
structural oppression faced by people of colour. It is not the same. And there has, I think, been a very pernicious myth amongst some very revisionist Irish historians and right-wing commentators that somehow... Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. In America, um, this idea of the, the Irish slaves, talking about Irish indentured servants being sent to the Caribbean in the 17th century, for example, they are not the same. Um, and I think it's a very dangerous myth to perpetuate that they are the same. It doesn't, it doesn't um, invalidate the fact that many Irish people experience discrimination, but the fact of the matter is, is that Okay, yes, so in, in my lifetime and in my parents' lifetime, we've had comments directed at us, you know, go back to where you came from, are you a terrorist, etc. Um, but I'm, you know, walking around London, I'm a white person, I'm pretty middle class these days, and until I open my mouth, you don't necessarily know I'm Irish. I'm passing. I'm passing for one of them. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, in some respects, I'm as establishment as it gets, you know, I don't want, there's no point pretending otherwise. Um, but... Well, it actually, it actually happens in in much smaller scale. Yeah. People, uh, uh, British racists, will start up conversations mm -hmm. to me about how much they hate, like poles even or whatever. And they, oh, well, you know, once they hear that my accent, oh well, you guys are okay. Yeah. It's like we get a we get a literal pass. It's like please come, yeah. we're having some racism in the parlor. Join us. Yeah. We have cookies. <laughs> yes. Two we'll chairs. Be, we'll be serving white chocolate. <laughs> um, I had a similar experience some years ago. I was flat hunting before I moved in with my partner and went to view a room and the other woman who lived in the flat was also the owner, so she would have been the landlady as well. So I'm sitting down thinking, that's a nice flat. She made me a cup of tea, that seems all right. And she goes, oh, I'm so glad you've come. Thanks. Um, yeah, the, all the girls have come to see the place before you. I didn't like any of them at all. Um, I mean, there was, you know, there was a Thai girl and you know they're all prostitutes. <laughs> what? Uh, and you know there was an Indian girl, and well, you know they're, they're just dirty. And anyway, it's so nice to see an English girl. Like, I'm not actually English. Like that was the most important thing here. I, oh well, you know what I mean. I did know what she meant. I left and I never came back. Um, but yes, there's that sense that somehow these days I think you're Irish, so you're you're just a bit different, but you're not too different. You're you know the safe foreign. Yeah, you're like the Coke Zero of Brits. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, another question. We have one there in the, in the middle. Hello, I'm Josephine. I'm originally from Coventry. Um, one of the themes that arose in um, your discussion was that there was a disenfranchisement of the Irish immigrants um, from Ireland itself. And um, I was, it made me recall an incident, because um, my grandparents are Irish, and um, a lot of my... Um, Nan's friends voted Brexit despite being Irish because they didn't get Irish television. And I was um, <laughs> thinking, like, do you feel a sense of dislocation from the place you are um, moving to um, London and feel that you're not welcomed back in the sense? Like the return of the native, you can never go home. Um, I feel like more in Derry, because uh, I first went to Dublin for seven years, and then I've now been in London longer than I was ever in Dublin, which is odd. So I left Derry when I was 18. And sometimes when I go back there, like, I don't know. Um, I, I don't really know kind of what's going on. Like, my dad does keep me up to date whenever I ring, um, and he's never actually factored in the fact that I don't watch uh, Spotlight Northern Ireland every single week. And he's always saying incredibly specific, did you see that the, the cash for ashes now moved into the fifth phase of... Uh, I was like, I, you know, this is a brave opening gambit in a conversation. Um, but I think in terms of Ireland, especially because, you know, an awful lot of my news gathering is done on Twitter, about half of all that sort of stuff is from Irish people and Irish accounts and friends of mine and, uh, or people that I write for. So I don't really feel that dislocation. I, have, I feel like I'm... Uh, slightly too informed about the goings on in like Irish, in, in Southern Irish uh, politics. I think it's kind of, it's possible to do that now, much so much easier. Um, I can only imagine it would have been different, you know, for generations of, you know, cousins and uncles and aunties that were over here and felt completely dislocated and obviously found their, uh, their release in, you know, things like that. And, um, but I think for us, we're, we're kind of blessed in that we do have, we have that, at least the illusion of being in, in the loop. You want to answer very briefly, and we can get one last question in. Uh, no, just to really uh, back up what Seamus said, I think having 
having the internet sounds, makes me sound like a nana, but it really, it does. It's got everything on it these days. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know, I know. It's shocking material, actually. Really didn't, didn't like what I found. Um, but it, it's a smaller world these days. You know, you, you're only a, a, an email or a WhatsApp or a 55-minute flight on Ryanair away. Yeah, I mean, that is the other thing. Is I mean, it's, it's disgracefully close. It's you know very very close, very very cheap to get there. So you know you're always back and forth anyway. So. Yeah. All right, I'll try a quick last question maybe. Um, yeah. So I'm just wondering. So you were saying, oh, thank God I wasn't. We didn't move to Wigan, and you're saying you're from Coventry. And I'm just wondering about the difference between the kind of London Irish experience and the so the, the centres where Irish people used to move to in like massive droves, like Coventry, Glasgow. Um, yeah, Liverpool as well. And it's almost like that sense of, like, UK Irishness is kind of, like, you see that kind of dying out, and it's mostly filled with, uh, it's like your friends are, oh, sorry, your friends, yeah. You're saying they went to an Irish centre in um, Leamington Spa. They were kind of astounded that any Irish people were there at all. And uh, it was just, like, people whose parents were Irish or whatever. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about the kind of, the difference between London Irish, which is kind of still vibrant and lots of Irish people moving here, versus the kind of... Uh, older generation, rest of UK Irishness that is kind of maybe fading away now at this point? Sure. I think from my own perspective, being able to call myself a Londoner has been enormously helpful in terms of self-identification because of what London is, in the sense that it is a massive and diverse city. And it is possible for anyone here, regardless of where you were born or what colour your skin is or whatever, to call yourself a Londoner. Even if you don't feel English or even if you don't feel British, you can be a Londoner and people won't really question that. Whereas I, I haven't lived outside London for very long. I, I spent, you know, apart from being away at university and I spent a year in Birmingham for a particular job where, of course, there's a very large Irish community. I didn't get that same sense of, you know, you're a brummy. And it doesn't matter if you're an Irish Brummie or if you're originally from Pakistan or if you're originally Polish. Um, it, there didn't seem to be that kind of cohesive identity. But I think that's a function in London of the, of the size and diversity of the place. And in that sense, I suppose we're a bit spoiled. Okay, all right. That's, and that's a, a nice note to leave it on, being a bit spoiled here in the city. And in this fantastic museum that we're at, uh, anyone listening online, I absolutely encourage you to come to the Museum of London and to see these really, really great exhibits um, going from all the way from prehistory to the modern day of the, of the history of London. Um, I'd like to thank the organizers as well for having us um, over here. And I will we'll pass you on over to Aileen Brennan. <laughs> Well, that's all from us for this St. Patrick's Day 2019. I'd like to say a very special thanks once again to the organiser of this event, William McQuillan, as well as to the team at the Museum of London, including, among many others, Aileen Brennan and Paula Diaz de Brito. One final thanks goes to our guests, Finbar Hooley, Daniel Tham and Seamus O'Reilly. We'll be back very soon with season three of The Irish Passport, and in the meantime, don't forget to check out our extra content over on Patreon. You can find that at www.patreon.com forward slash The Irish Passport. Or, if you're feeling gregarious this St. Patrick's Day weekend, why not go over and give us a nice big five-star rating on whatever podcast app you use. Slán chag a gach dinna, agus lá éle bárach hán a Galair. Slán.